0: father as we look in your word this morning i pray that your spirit would prompt us and lead us to get the things out of it that you want for us no more and no less in jesus name amen we're in first kings eight this morning before i get into that i wanted to uh, mention two other things clarifications when i taught in fact, when we went through the slide series on Solomon's temple, I mentioned emphatically that Solomon's temple didn't have a veil. And I try and do my homework and be thorough, but you know what 2 Chronicles 3.14 says, he made the veil a violet, purple, crimson, and fine linen, and he worked cherubim on it. And as you guys know, in the Gospels, you've got four stories. Some include something that others exclude. And in First and 2 Kings, actually Samuel and Kings, are parallel in that same way with 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So you've got a couple different ways of looking at the same thing. This is not included in 1st Kings. matter of fact, if you noticed in Lane Rittmeyer's scenes, it's not included, but apparently there was in Solomon's Temple, along with the olive wood doors that uh, closed off the holy place from the Holy of Holies, 2nd Chronicles 3 says there was a veil there also. So anyway, that was an errata note for you. And then the second thing was, I did want to give credit where credit was due, and don't think I mentioned this. When we talked about, uh, when we looked at the Spirit of God coming down into the temple in the first part of 1 Kings 8, the development that I gave of this theme, the biblical theme from Genesis to Revelation, that it's God's creating fellowship or a home, a place of habitation with man as the key theme of the Bible, um, the thing that crystallized this for me and that helped me more than anything else was an article, actually in a talk, by a guy named Greg Beal. He's a Wheaton professor. And in the Journal, what is it? Jets. Journal of Evangelical Theological Society, sorry. Eden the Temple and the Church's Mission in the New Creation by Greg Beal was a summary of his 450-page book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. And that's where, although I've read certainly elsewhere and, and it's a theme otherwise, I did want to tell you, if you wanted to read more about it, this is where you can. Greg Beale, his book is The Temple and the Church's Mission or his article is available online at the JETS website. Okay? So that's all water under the bridge now. So we're in 1 Kings 8. We'll take verses 12 through 21 this morning. To set this up, if you remember last time, Solomon's temple's done. And the day comes that they're going to dedicate it. And so the priests take up the Ark of the Covenant. They carry it through. They put it in the Holy of Holies. And what happens? This cloud, this presence of God in a cloud comes down into the temple. They know God has showed up. The priests run out. They can't stand in there anymore. This is just like the cloud of glory on the tabernacle in the wilderness. They run out. And the assembly is all around the new temple. And this is where we take up. And by the way, as you maybe imagine this in your mind's eye, Second Chronicles tells us that Solomon had a bronze stand made. It was seven and a half feet square by about four and a half feet high, and that was in the middle of the temple court area so that when he speaks to God and addresses the people and then prays to dedicate the temple, he's doing so from a podium that people could hear and see him from. 1 Kings 8:12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Then the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. And Forgive me, but let me insert two verses from 2 Chronicles 5 just to make sure we're all on the same page. There he says, Since the day that I brought my people from the land of Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man for a leader over my people Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. You can see the Second Chronicles passage clarifies what 1 Kings tells us. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, but the Lord said to my father, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. By the way, chapter 8 is a lengthy chapter. This is where it starts as far as Solomon's speaking. But from ch- verse 22 on, he goes into a lengthy prayer of dedication, which we'll look at later. But this morning, Solomon first addresses God, then he turns and faces the people, and it, he gives thanks. And if you notice, he gives thanks that God kept his word, that he did for David what he would promised he would. He thanks God for his faithfulness. And on the day Solomon's here praying and giving thanks, he's thanking God that David has a son, which is him, to sit on David's throne and to build the temple and that the temple that God told David he let his son build, it's done. So for Solomon, this is a day of completion. It's a day to give thanks because God was faithful to his word to David. The temple's here and David's heir is reigning on the throne of Israel. Now when God, or when... uh, Solomon says that God had not chosen a city or a man in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. Let me hasten to say it's not as if God made up his mind at some point in time that he would do something. It's that he made known his choice and his will at a point in time. You guys might or might not be aware there's theology that's been going around for four or five years now. um, called open, generally called open theology. Um, There's another term escapes me right now. Anyway, it says something like this. God learns as time goes on because man in his free will makes decisions that God could not know ahead of time. So even though they will say theoretically God is omniscient, they really mean that no, he isn't. And their view of omniscience is God knows everything that can be known, but there are things that God cannot know because they cannot be known since man, a free will creature, makes his mind up through time and God can't know that ahead of time. And on the positive side, trying to infer the best motive that's possible for some of these folks anyway, they're trying to make sense of some passages that say God changed his mind, God repented, God was sorry, at least anthropomorphic language that, that seems to imply that God was changing the way he was thinking or what he was going to do. There's other, there's other ways to resolve these passages. We don't need to say God is not omniscient. He says elsewhere quite clearly that he is. So when we're talking about God chose, first he didn't choose and then he did choose. No, he always had chosen, but that choice was not made clear. But now here today it is made clear. This day Solomon stands up, it's clear. God has made his choices, his will known. What has he chosen? Well, he had chosen Jerusalem as the site for his people and his temple, his house, or his dwelling. And he had chosen David and his sons to be the leaders over his people, Israel. So Solomon, and this is actually where we're going to spend our time, Solomon gives thanks that God kept his word. And he says, you know, at one point when we came into the land, it wasn't clear to us that Jerusalem, that this town, this geography, would be the place God chose. But now we understand God chose this hill. And when we came into the land, it wasn't clear that David would be king. But now we understand because God sorted him out, chose him. Now we understand that. And what I want to focus our time on this morning is God choosing Jerusalem and David. And then we'll look at some application related to that. God chose, Solomon says, Jerusalem, where this temple now stands. When Solomon says this, it makes sense to Israel. Or if we're reading our Old Testament and we read from Genesis up, we might say, well, gosh, that makes sense. And certainly we could say, we can look back and say, well, there were hints along the way that this would make sense, that this was God's choice. Let me show you a few of the hints related to Jerusalem. The first is in Genesis 12, When God commands Abraham to leave Ur and go walk in this place he's never been before, he says he's going to give him this strip of land from the Euphrates to Egypt, from the Mediterranean, basically over to the Jordan River. So if God was going to choose a city on earth, it makes sense that it's within this geography, right? Because that's where he told Abraham, your descendants are going to live. This is the land I'm giving you. So Genesis 12, okay, God's going to choose a city, probably going to be in this location. Genesis 14, the story where Abraham goes and he defeats the five kings who had attacked Sodom and he rescues his nephew Lot and brings him back. Do you remember what he does with the spoils of war? He goes to the priest king of the city of Salem. The priest king's name is Melchizedek and you can read about him in Hebrews as well as Genesis 14. And what does Abraham do? He pays Melchizedek a tithe this priest king of Salem. And what what does this mean? This is the priest king of the city of peace. This is the king, Salem, Shalom, Salem. It means peace. So Abraham tithes to his greater, the king of peace, who lives in the city of Salem, which later becomes Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Genesis 14. 2 Samuel 5. David, if you remember, where's the city that he lives in when he's first king? Hebron, right? Seven years. And then what does he do? He changes his mind. He says, you know, I like that city up there on the hill. That's the one I want for my capital. And what's that city? It's Jerusalem. At this point, it's not called Jerusalem. It's called Jebus. Why? Because the Jebusites live there. Formerly known as Salem, now Jebus, and later Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 5. 2 Samuel 24 Did I miss a big one? I sure did. Sorry, I missed one of the most important ones. Don't let me forget this. Come back to Abraham. If I forget, you remind me. 2 Samuel 24. Do You remember near the end of David's life, he does something. In fact, it says Satan moves him to do something. He numbers the people. He's not supposed to. God brings judgment. And David allows God to choose the judgment, and it's a plague that goes through Israel. And it stops when the angel of the Lord with the sword raised stops where? On Mount Moriah. And he stops at the place that Ornan, the Jebusite, has a threshing floor. And if you remember the story, David comes up and says, Got to have this place. And he takes the oxen and the stuff, the plows, the wooden stuff the plows are made of, and he offers an offering right there at Ornan's threshing floor to appease God's wrath because of his sin, and the angel of destruction stops right there. And you know where that is? That Mount Moriah is what? That's Jerusalem. That's, by the way, where the temple stands or stood. And then going back to Genesis, uh, let's see, is it 20 or 21? Do you remember when Father Abraham finally gets his boy Isaac? What does God tell him to do? He says, go take your son, your only son, and do what? March him up to this mountain that I'll show you. Then you offer him there. The father offers the son on Mount what? Mount Moriah. Guess where that is? That's Jerusalem. So when we look back, we see the hints along the way, and we say, well, it's no surprise then that God chose Jerusalem because we see his hand on it all along the way. God chose Jerusalem. Now, after he makes his choice known here in 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles. Then he starts saying, I chose Jerusalem, I chose Jerusalem, I chose Jerusalem. 1 Kings 11.13, For the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen, verse 32, For the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen. I'm going to bore you for a second. 1 Kings 11.36, Jerusalem, the city I have chosen to put my name, 2 Kings 21.4, Jerusalem I'll put my name, 21.7, in Jerusalem which I have chosen, 2 Kings 23.27, The city which I have chosen, the temple which I said my name will be there. 2 Chronicles 6, I have chosen Jerusalem. You get the idea. There's hints leading up to it. Then God says, this is my choice, and then he affirms it all the way after that. This is the place I chose. You didn't always know it, but now I tell you this was my choice, and now I affirm it because I tell you over and over again I chose Jerusalem. It wasn't always evident. You couldn't have necessarily picked it out. But once you see God's choice, you say, okay, now I see it's all clear, and I see the hints leading up to it. Related to God choosing David, far fewer hints related to David as king and his line as the promised line, but there's at least a couple. Genesis 49. Do you remember when old patriarch Jacob's lying on his deathbed, what he does? He blesses, some might say curses, prophesies over his sons, right? And in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10, speaking of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. If you were going to say, a king will someday arise from Israel, where would be a good bet that he's going to come from? Judah. From the tribe of Judah. Jacob said, when there's a king, and you remember initially, Israel's not supposed to have a king, But they eventually call for one. God said through Jacob, when Israel has a king, he's going to be from the tribe of Judah. Now, their first king is not. He's from what? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah, but we'll look at that in just a second. But Genesis 49, if we're looking for a king, we at least start, we say Judah. That's the place. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel speaking to Saul, whom God is rejecting, says... So Samuel said to him, Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Now, we don't know who the neighbor is yet. Nobody knows. Samuel doesn't know. He just knows. God says, I'm taking the kingdom from you, Saul, I'm giving it to your neighbor. Now, if we're thinking widely, neighbor could mean any Jew, right? Any Jewish man, your neighbor, anybody in Israel. But isn't it interesting, too, that Benjamin is next to what? Judah. They're adjacent to each other, and certainly in that case at least, David is Saul's neighbor geographically. They're from tribes that adjoin each other. Then in 1 Samuel 16, God has told Samuel, you go down to this guy's house in this area, because that's where my next king's coming from, and then he makes his choice known. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 1 Samuel 16, 12, and 13. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. There's less hints, certainly, about David, not near as specific as the city of Jerusalem, but we go back and once God has chosen David, then we say, well, sure, makes sense. Makes sense. Judah, right kind of guy we see later, a man after God's heart, but the choice makes sense. Afterwards, God reiterates His choice of David. First Chronicles seventeen seven. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep. In other words, you're king because I took you. David, speaking in First Chronicles 28, 4, says, The Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. He has chosen Judah. To be a leader in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. Why is David king? Because God chose him. In fact, after this, if you read the stories in Kings, especially First and Second Kings, you'll see that every king after David, I uh, can't remember if this is specific to Solomon, is compared to David as the archetype of God's V- a vision of a king. Also the southern portion of the nation of Israel is called what? The House of David. And Jerusalem is called what? The city of David. God affirms time and time and time again after the choice is made known or made public that David was his choice. David was his man. God had always chosen both the city and the leader, that he wanted related to his people. His choice was always there, but it wasn't always known. Then once he makes it known, he affirms that time and time again. Now think about this for just a minute. What was Jerusalem before God chose it? It was really an unimpressive hill among some rocky hills in the Middle East, right? It's just, you know, by our view, the mountains in Israel, they're not much. They're little little rocky hills. I mean, if you go to Colorado, you know, we had our vacation. You look at Long's Peak, you know, or Pike's Peak, these tall, majestic mountains. What was Jerusalem before God chose it? An unimpressive little hill. The end of a hill. Not much before God chose it. Think about this. What was David before God chose him? This is, in some sense, it's laughable. What was David before God's choice? He was the youngest sibling of this family, this little tribe of boys. He was the youngest. When he didn't show up, nobody noticed. When there was a menial task to to be taken care of, like those few sheep that his old dad still had, who was doing it? It was David. Before God chose him, he was just little brother. No one well-known, no one that you necessarily would have looked at and picked out as God's choice for the first of His line of leaders in Israel. Not at all. Related to Jerusalem, it was God's choice. It was His choosing that little hill west of Jericho that made Jerusalem the center of the earth. It was God's choice. It was God's choice that made that otherwise insignificant little mound, that little rocky outcrop in Israel, the site that He would call His home, And the place that he would put his house, this house that Solomon is standing in front of, in which that cloud of glory has just come down and entered. Or related to David, it was God's choice that empowered this young, untried lad to become a hero in Israel. And it was God's choice that made baby brother grow up to be the king of Israel. It was God's choice all along that transformed the place and the person. Now, It isn't always easy to see what God will do with a person or a place or a thing. These places, these people were insignificant on their own. Not always easy to predict that ahead of time. Bring this a little closer to home. You know, when we look around at each other, most of us are pretty unimpressive in in most ways. And, you know, if you make good as you grow on or grow up in life, a lot of times people scratch their head like, who would have ever thunk that they would have come out okay or that they would have succeeded or whatever. Or how many times do you and I look at someone else and maybe we think in our own mind, they'll never become a Christian. Maybe like our friend Patrick. You know, somebody might look at Patrick and think he's an unlikely candidate, but you don't know, and I don't know. Why? Because we're leaving out God's choice. We're leaving out God's sovereignty. We don't know where a person, a place, or a thing will go in God's hands. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've entrusted yourself to his care and you're a Christian, I can tell you with all the authority of the scriptures, that's God's authority, that no less than the city of Jerusalem and no less than the person of David, God chose you. He singled you out. And he called you by name, and he said, you're mine. No less than Jerusalem. No less than that temple sitting on the hill there. Remember when the glory came down? We talked about this, that we are individually and corporately. We're the temple of God today. Well, if you've trusted Christ, God chose you. You're his because he chose you, and he named you by name, and he wrote your name on his hand, and he said, you're mine. And he took lumps like you and me, And he says, I've got something planned for you. And if you look back on your life, maybe you don't see it. It might not be real evident or it might not be real clear. But maybe, like Jerusalem or David, you might see little hints along the way in your own life or the lives of others. But it's God's choice that makes that transformation. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, speaking to Christians just like you and me, he says, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. What did He do? He chose you and He called you. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter looks at Christians and he says, You're chosen. God called you out. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we've been chosen, just like Jerusalem, just like the temple, just like David. In the New Testament, when you read words like the church, it's the Greek term ekklesia, and it means those who have been called out, chosen. If someone has an eclectic taste in music, what does that mean? It means that they pick this and they pick that. If I have an eclectic taste in foods, it means I pick this and I pick that. It's not one thing, but it's the things I choose. When God looks at the church today, he says, you're the ones I called out. You're the ones I reached down and I chose. We're the chosen ones. There's no pride in this. You know, if I'm, uh, if I'm David's big brother, I'm the tallest, I'm the handsomest, I'm the fittest, and God chooses me, I think. Yeah, good choice, Lord, cuz I'm I'm me. But if I'm David, if I'm that kind of the runt, the smaller guy at the end of the litter and God chooses me, I'm like, "Wow. That was a curve." Well, there's no pride in saying we're God's chosen ones. It's his doing. You remember the kind of people God likes to choose, don't you? 1 Corinthians, the lowly, the stupid, The unwise, the have-nots, that's most of us, right? Yeah, that's us. But he looks at us and he says, you're my called-out ones. You're my chosen ones. That's the word he uses. In Ephesians 3, when we're thinking about hints related to what God's choices are before they're made, Paul says, you know what, this church thing, this was a mystery, There were hints, but it wasn't clear. This was a mystery before. Paul says in Ephesians 3, You can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. What's that, Paul? Well, this is the mystery. That the Gentiles, unless you're Jewish, this is us. No matter what race you're from, country you're from, skin color you have, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And the mystery was, it's hinted at, we'll look at a couple hints, but the mystery was that the Gentiles would be heirs with the Jews, heirs of God, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the Gospels. And this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, for you and I today, we are Gentiles. We think like Gentiles. This isn't a downside, it's just the way it is. If you were a Jew in Paul's day or any time up to Paul and somebody told you God's bringing in the Gentiles, making no distinction between a Gentile and a Jew, no way, no how. You mean those dirty Gentiles that don't live in the promised land, those dirty Gentiles who've bowed down to other gods? The Jews would say, no way. Paul says, oh no, this was the mystery. God hadn't made it clear in the past, but this was his eternal Purpose. God didn't change his mind. He didn't make it up as he went. Paul says this was his eternal purpose. It was going to happen all the time, but the choice wasn't made clear yet. There were hints, though. Genesis 12, going back to the beginnings. What did God tell Abraham? He said that in Abraham's descendant, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Not just Abraham's physical descendants through Isaac, who become the Jewish nation. All peoples. And by the way, when you read the term peoples or nations in the Old Testament, you need to think Gentiles. Gentiles. That is, those who are outside the covenant. Those who aren't part of God's promised people, Israel. Psalm 67.4 is like many other verses in Psalms when it says, May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. The psalmist is saying those people who aren't Jews. That's who he's talking about. This needed to change because the Gentiles didn't praise God. They didn't know Him. The psalmist looks and says there will be a day when the peoples and the nations, those people who aren't in covenant with God, become in covenant with God. Those who aren't God's people become His people. Or in Isaiah, some of my favorite passages, I the Lord have called you... He's speaking of the Messiah here. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be, what? A covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. That's what I'm going to do with my Messiah. He'll be a light to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Isaiah 49, speaking of his Messiah again, he says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. In other words, of the Messiah, it's not enough that you should just restore Israel and bring back those of Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation, where? To the ends of the earth. You see, there were hints in the Old Testament. It just wasn't clear what they meant. But We look back and we say God had said all along he was going to bring in the Gentiles. Paul says it was his mystery. It was the secret that he hadn't made widely known. In John 15, Jesus speaking to his own disciples, those near and dear to him, on his last night, he says, I chose you. I appointed you. I chose you out of the world. You didn't choose me, he says. I chose you, and I appointed you. Closing on these verses with Ephesians 1, if you wonder if God's sovereign in the affairs of of man, in the affairs of the world, just read Ephesians 1. Starting at verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he chose us in him. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God doesn't make it up as he goes. This was before the world was formed. God chose us in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. It wasn't always evident. But God chose you before the foundation of the world to be his. And now if you look back, you might see hints in your own life, and we certainly see hints in the scriptures, God chose us. You know, God chose Jerusalem, that place where Solomon's standing, looking at the temple, the place God wanted to make his home, and he chose David. And just as clearly and just as forcefully and just as sovereignly and just as much to his glory, God's looked down and he chose you and he chose me. When you are having a bad day or feel like life is not what it ought to be or should be or the way you would mapped it out, you remember this. God chose you before the foundation of the world. God chose you. When it seems that God is not answering your prayers and following your dictates and the plan you laid out for God's glory for your life, you remember this. God looked down and he said, I chose you. I chose you. If you're not sure, if you've not trusted Christ, you need to trust him. You don't need to worry about what God chose or not. This is what Jesus says. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus says in John 7, the one who comes to me I will never turn out, would never turn you away. Jesus says, you come to me, you're welcome. Then afterwards he says, and by the way, I chose you. So come on. I want to close with a very brief illustration. Uh, I don't know if the men have read the books or seen the movies. You know, in A House of Females, I've seen all the good movies. And so the Jane Austen movie, Persuasion, you know, if you know the movie or the story, I, I have not read the book, so I'm just going on the images and the story I've seen. In the movie, there's this guy, this is Captain Wentworth, right? Make sure. I've seen it and, you know, I don't pay attention as much as I should sometimes. And there's this little, there's this little unrespected dist sister in this family called Anne. And at the end of the movie, this part I love, this dashing, tall, strong, wealthy Captain Wentworth comes into this guy's home and he says, I've asked your daughter, Ann, for her hand in marriage. And I just want to set the date. And the, the, the sister's jaw drops. And her father says, Ann, well, what in the world would you want to do that for? Why would you ask Ann to be your wife? See, to the sisters and to the dad, this is shocking and surprising. But you look at the story that leads up to it, there's no surprise almost at all. This Captain Wentworth, he'd been wooing her before. In fact, she's rejected him before. And now sometimes passively, sometimes a little bit more aggressively, he's been trying to woo her again and see, is there a chance? See, he'd chosen Anne all along. And at the end of the movie, you see the choice, the payoff. But to everybody else, it's a startling surprise. It's like this crusty little hill there in Palestine. (laughs) Or it's like this insignificant little brother. Or it's like you, or it's like me. It's this person that other people didn't look at or look up to and respect, and, and the captain says, that's my choice. That's us. God looks down and He says, I chose you. And let me close with this verse out of Isaiah 43. It's speaking of Israel. It's true. For every Christian, for every blood-bought saint, adopted child of God, this verse is true. Thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, o Israel, don't fear, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. and You are mine. I've called you by name. You're mine. This is the glory of God that he reaches down and he chooses. Sovereignly makes these, makes these choices to his glory and to our good. And he calls that little dusty hill, my home. And he calls David, that little brother, my king. And he looks down at you and I and he says, you're mine. His choice makes all the difference. Let's pray. Lord, I am struck again and again as I think about Ephesians 1 that your choosing, your sovereign choice is done out of the kindness of your will. Lord, I look at the likes of a place like Jerusalem or a man like David or, or the other unlikely heroes of your story, your history. Record in the Bibles and I'm struck again and again that it's God who's at work in us both to do and to will His good pleasure. Father, thanks that You reach down and You choose from eternity past to exalt pieces of clay like us to become Your children, to be called sons and daughters of the living God. Father, I pray that there's not a day of our life that we take for granted, that in the kindness of Your will You've caused us to be born again. You've exercised Your option and made us Your own. You've chosen us. And, Father, you affirm that again and again, calling us your chosen ones, your called-out group, your sons and your daughters. Father, it is to the praise of your glory. Help us to reflect thankful hearts to you forever for your sovereign choice performed in the kind intention of your will. In Jesus' name, amen.